John chapter 2 tonight, as we continue our study of the Gospel of John. John chapter 2. While you're turning to John chapter 2, just a reminder that we have again these cards available over there uh, for the study of Elijah. If you haven't picked one up, I would encourage everyone to pick one up just to pray over this series coming up in November on Sunday mornings. It's going to be November and December, our Sunday morning series here at the Oasis. And uh, pick up an extra one if you know of someone that you'd like to invite to come with you to the series on Elijah. I'd just like to read this passage and then just share some thoughts that God impressed upon me as I read and studied this passage. John writes, Now on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no wine left. Jesus replied, Woman, why are you saying this to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother told the servants, Whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus told the servants, Fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. When the head steward had tasted the water that had been turned into wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What does this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding feast what significance does that have for us today? Well, I think it can say a lot to us about Jesus and about who he is and what he can do and what he wants to do for us. Let's go back first, though, to the first verse and get sort of the backdrop or background of what is happening here. On the third day, I believe, is in reference to after he had met Nathaniel. And remember, Jesus here is in the midst of calling his first followers, his first sort of formal disciples. And so it's been about a week now since Jesus has started his earthly ministry. And the Bible said last week at the end of chapter 1 that Jesus wanted to go up into the region of Galilee. And a if you look at a map, there is Lower Galilee and there is Upper Galilee where the Sea of Galilee is at. Uh, Cana and, and Nazareth would sort of be in the region of Lower Galilee, if you will. And, and I think that Jesus, 
last week by wanting to say, I, I want to go to Cana, he already knew and had been invited, as we're going to see here in a minute, to this wedding. And so it was sort of on the way, if you will, to where he was eventually going to go. And it says, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now let's be reminded that Jewish weddings, especially in that day, was not a couple hour event or a one day event. It was usually a week long event. And there was lots of feasting and lots of celebration. I mean, there was sort of a formal wedding, but there was a week-long party that went along with it, if you will. And so that's what is happening here. And the Bible tells us in verse 1 that Jesus' mother was there. Now, one of the things you're going to see, especially in this passage tonight, that you'll find in other passages of Scripture, is there's a lot that God chose not to tell us. There's a lot of conversation and stuff that's went on and everything that we don't know. And we have to be careful as Christians that we don't cross over into trying to speculate about things that we don't know. What we do need to concentrate on are the things that the text does tell us. And sometimes, like tonight, it can help us to get back to start to fill in some of the gaps of the things that we don't know. Why I say that at this point is because it says Jesus' mother was there, but obviously it doesn't say anything about Joseph, Jesus' father. And we don't know. You know, it would only be speculation to go, was he not invited? Did he not want to go? Was he dead at this point? Because there is that point in the life of Jesus where Joseph is no longer a part of what's going on. And the Bible really never tells us exactly what happened to Joseph. But we do know that Jesus' mother, Mary, was there. And we know that because she was there and because she had such an intimate knowledge of what was going on in the background, that probably this wedding was a wedding for somebody either in Jesus' family or a very close friend. Because Cana and Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, was only a few miles apart. And these small towns, as I said last week, people would have known each other from these small towns. So you have Cana and Nazareth, probably less than five miles from each other, and this is where the wedding's taking place. And Jesus' mother is there. And we also know here that Jesus also was, and his disciples were invited. So obviously this is some connection to Jesus and his family, if you will. And the Bible says, so Jesus and his disciples, verse 2, were also invited to the wedding. It's important to invite Jesus to things. And can I just say that any wedding that invites Jesus to that wedding and to their marriage, that's a good thing. In fact, when you start looking at Jesus being invited places, 
One of the things that you realize is that Jesus never turned down an invitation. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, you know, set boundaries or all of that and didn't, you know, but as far as Jesus was concerned, if somebody wanted him to be a part of something, he was there. And I think there's a principle there for us that Jesus wants to be invited to things. And he will always be a part of what he is invited to. He will never force himself into any situation, into any life, into any area of life. But if he is invited, he will come and he will come in. And it will be an absolute blessing as we're going to see here tonight. This is one of the things we can take away from what does this passage have to do with us. So when we think about that, just for a moment, let's just stay there a second. Is there something that I should invite Jesus into right now? Is there a situation? Is there something causing me concern or anxiety? Is there a a room in my life or a part of my life that I've sort of not ever wanted Jesus to be a part of and and he's just waiting for my invitation. Because what we do learn in the Gospels and through the life of Jesus is Jesus is always open to invitation. And being a part of things. And notice here too, that Jesus wanted to be a part of sort of everyday life and just the life of people. And he wanted to be part of celebrating things like a wedding. In fact, I would submit to you that many people down through history think that having a party and inviting Jesus to it sort of kills the party. I would submit to you after reading this passage and studying this passage, if you really want to have a party, you're going to make sure Jesus is there. Because Jesus actually is going to add to any gathering, any party, any get-together that any of us as human beings could have. He's only going to raise the level of it. He's not going to diminish it in any way. See, people today, people of the world, and even Christians who, who don't have a proper perspective on things, think, if, if I invite Jesus, Jesus sort of kills it all. We, we can't have any fun with Jesus. And I think this is an example that Jesus being invited to something just makes it that much more enjoyable. And there is a joy and blessing that comes from Jesus being right at the center of it and being a part of it that we could never experience outside of Jesus not being there. Then the Bible says in verse 3, when the wine ran out. Let's stop there for a moment. Again, that might not be a big deal to us. In Jewish culture, a couple thousand years ago, for a couple to be married and have this great feast and invite all their family and friends and run out of wine was several things. First of all, it would have been a huge embarrassment to that family because it was just very much proper in that culture that if you invited people, you made sure there was enough of everything. 
You, you didn't, you didn't run out because you don't invite people to something and then not have enough for them. Secondly, the Jews took this so seriously that there could have even been legal ramifications from this. Using our modern terminology, this couple could have gotten sued or taken to court over this. I mean, that's how serious this kind of stuff is, okay? And, and let's even say this. This couple, especially since they were just starting out, this would have been a mark upon them and their marriage for the rest of their lives. This would have been a cloud that would have hung over them forever. So when it says the wine was getting ready to run out, that was not just, oh, okay, so we don't have maybe any more wine. It went a lot deeper than that. It was a lot more serious than that. There was a lot more implied in that statement and the wine ran out. Remember too that, that, that wine is symbolic of joy. And celebration, and especially at a wedding, it was like, you know, gee whiz, you know, that's all gone. And so when the wine ran out, or as the wine was getting ready to run out, the Bible says Jesus' mother goes to him and says, they have no wine left. Now, again, remember, based upon what John tells us later in this passage, this is the first miracle of Jesus. So I don't think Mary was expecting a miracle. But because Mary knew who Jesus was, it was like, if anybody can figure out something and save this family and save this couple from all of this embarrassment and shame and everything... It would be Jesus. So I'm going to go to him and lay this at his feet. Not a bad thing to do. Now I want you to see Jesus' words here. And I know in the English this seems like, wow, he was pretty rude to his mother, right? But hang in there with me, okay? So Jesus replied, first of all, woman. Now, this word to us, again, seems, ooh. But in Jesus' day, this was actually a term of respect and affection. In fact, this was a term that Jesus used many times to other women, especially women that were part of his band of followers. He would use this as a way to greet other women. The only thing unusual here is it would have been an unusual term for his mother. Not an unusual term for anyone who's female. Not a term of disrespect at all. And like I said, it's even a term of affection in the Jewish language. But it was not a common term for a son to his mother. The significance of that is, as we're going to see here in just a minute, is yes, Mary was the earthly mother of Jesus. But he's still the son of God. And Mary had to learn that there was a distinction between 
in this particular case, between what a normal mother and son's relationship would be and what her relationship with the Son of God would be. And that He's God. And so, unlike obviously in that culture, where the mother, being the elder, obviously, and being the mom, would trump the son in every respect. In this case, the son trumps the mother. You see. And obviously, put yourself in that place. And, and that's one of the cool things that we get to do is try to engage ourselves in the flow of what's happening in the Bible. Mary had to navigate that. And Jesus had to navigate that. Again, without being disrespectful to his earthly mother, there always had to be that marker of distinction that I'm God and I'm your creator. And even though you are my earthly mother, there's a line here separating creator from everything that has been created. Which is why then he responds with, why are you saying this to me? And in the original language, what Jesus is trying to convey here, what, what God is trying to convey by Jesus saying this is, what is the specific connection between them running out of wine, you approaching me, and then what he says in just a second, my hour has not yet come. In other words, again, we don't have the whole conversation here, every word that took place between Mary and Jesus. But what we can infer from what Jesus says next is there must have been a little bit of a push from Mary for Jesus to begin to exhibit his messianic glory. To begin to show people and demonstrate who he really is. Because up to this point, obviously, he hasn't done that yet. This was his first miracle that's about to happen. And his ministry has just gotten started. But let's remember, go back just a step or two and run up to this. I'm sure that part of Mary's motivation, because Mary needed a Savior just like we did, Mary was human just like we are. And she even calls Jesus her Savior. That there was probably a little self-interest on Mary's part in pushing Jesus to demonstrate who he was. Think about it with me. Why? Because for 30-some years, Mary had to live under the cloud of, yeah, right, you got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right, your son is anything more special than any other son. And there had to be something in Mary. It's like, show him, Jesus. Show him. Because in that way, don't forget that somehow Mary is vindicated by that. 
As Jesus begins to show who he really is, then all those wagging tongues in Nazareth for years might be put in their place. And that's why we can get that from this text, because the very next thing that Jesus says is, my hour has not yet come. And that's a significant statement that comes out of Jesus' mouth. Because it is a common theme throughout the Gospel of John. His hour, his time. It it speaks of a definite, fixed time. And it primarily has to deal with his passion on the cross. But it also can include the events that lead up to that, demonstrating who he really is as he shares himself and gives the claim that he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior of the world. And what we have here, then, in this conversation that is never disrespectful, but in some way a little awkward and a little tense, is this is this tension between a mother and a son, between a human being and God, about wrestling with my will and God's will, and my timing and God's timing. And guess what? This is something we can get out of this. Because we wrestle with the same thing. In fact, what is taking place here between Mary and Joseph could be applied to all of our prayer life. Because in a sense... What Mary is doing is she's approaching God, which is what we should do. And in a sense, asking God, God, could you do something? And then having to step back and let God be God. And then saying, this is what I am asking, but I recognize who I am. And I recognize who you are. And so I'm going to let you have the final call on this. And I'm going to acknowledge your timing in this, not my timing. Because one thing that Jesus is showing here, that again is a great example for us, is that he lived totally by God's timetable and God's will and would not allow even his own earthly mother who was very dear to him to pressure him into anything that wasn't God's will and God's timing. And here again is something you and I can apply to our lives every day. We live in that tension every day of am I going to let other people push me and pressure me into something that I don't really feel is God's will or God's timing? Or am I going to give in to that pressure and just do it? And what Jesus is doing here by answering Mary in the way he did, even though we're going to see that he does do something, is he's putting a a boundary and saying, Mary, there is a proper There's a proper point to which any human being can come, but then you should let it go at that point and let it up to God. Which, to her credit, you'll notice as we move later on here, I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, she does do that. She provides a great... She doesn't nag Jesus. She simply steps back and lets him take over and whatever he's going to do... That's up to him. And and she takes a step back. 
And so we see that here. Where Jesus will not be pressured by any human being into doing something that first hasn't checked out as this is God's will or this would be within God's will and that this would be within God's timing, you see. And what a great example for us. Because again, you and I are going to be pressured throughout our lives by other people to do things or say things or be part of things or whatever that when it comes right down to it, that may not be God's personal desire for us or at the very least, it may be a matter of timing. It may be that later on that might be something, but for right now the answer is no. And I need to be okay with saying no. You need to be okay with saying no. Because God's will and God's timing in all of our lives has to trump everyone and everything else. And that's what, that's what we're seeing here. Sorry. All right. So Jesus replied, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. His mother then told the servants, and here's a great line, whatever he tells you, do it. Here's here's a lesson out of the passage. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, we should do it. Uh, That's just a great principle. And, And again, she doesn't know what that actually is. In fact, probably maybe at this moment she might not even know if he's gonna say anything. But in a sense, by saying this, she's saying, if he decides to act, If he decides to do something, you do it. You carry it out. You execute it. You make sure that it happens. So, verse 6. There were six stone water pots jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing. And notice something here that we're learning. Jesus didn't go outside of what was there. He used what was there to perform a miracle and to work. And again, a great principle for us. When Jesus comes into our life, He's not ever going to ask us for what's not there. He has plenty to work with. And He will work with what's there to do unbelievable things. Just like the six water pots for ceremonial washing. So again, because these were ceremonial washings, it wasn't like today where we would wash our hands before we eat or something. It was just sort of ceremonial and ritual. But it was still the idea that this water inside these jars would not have been necessarily the best to drink after people, right? So you get where that's going, right? Okay. And then the Bible says... Each were holding 20 or 30 gallons. So at the very least, I know I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I want to, I want to share. So six times 20, even I can do that math. 120 gallons. 
Listen, here's, here's something we're going to... When Jesus did supply wine, He supplied a bunch of wine. 120 gallons. And here's the principle for us. Here's the message for us. When you and I invite Jesus into something, when Jesus chooses to do it, and when Jesus does it, it is in abundance. Unto Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. Folks, when they ran out of wine, they were probably going to be happy with a few gallons of wine just to get them. He supplied them with 120 minimum gallons of wine. When He did it, He did it. Because that's the kind of Jesus we have. He doesn't just do things just in... He does it in abundance. In abundance. By the way, getting ahead of myself again. So some people might go, well, golly, the Bible says that they were already half drunk. And then Jesus is going to supply him with 120 more gallons? Isn't he just leading them? They're like, you know, no. Because here's the principle. There are many things that God does for human beings that human beings can abuse. That's not God's fault. That's our responsibility. Ever since the beginning of time, God set up His universe that He would give things to man with always, after the fall, that man could abuse the good things that God gave. In fact, very basically, when God gave human beings a free will, we abuse that free will and do things that we shouldn't do with our free will. That doesn't mean that God was bad to give us something that actually is good. And in the right context, it's okay to have wine. It's just not okay in the Bible to have too much wine. In fact, in the Bible, Jesus even says, I will drink wine with you in the kingdom. And can I tell you that the food and wine that Jesus is going to supply in the kingdom is going to make the food and wine, even that's really good today, taste like cardboard and yucky stuff. Like the stuff we use for communion. Not the bread. I love Lynn's bread. And I'm, I'm responsible for the awful wine that we use around here, okay? That's, that's on me. That's not on Teresa or any of the, the folks that do that. Anyway. I digress very much. <laughs> so Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the head steward, the superintendent of the banquet. We could even maybe say in our day, the wedding coordinator. Okay. Now a couple things. Very interestingly, the words draw out here actually come from the concept of rescue. And so we see that Jesus here is coming to the rescue of this couple and this family. Did he have to? No. It shows Jesus' mercy and compassion. He could have just said, well, whether it was intentional or not, whether they just were negligent and just didn't have enough wine for the guests they invited, or else they made their best guess or whatever, and they just 
They, they made a mistake. They ran out. We don't know why they didn't have enough wine. But here's what we do know. Jesus stepped in to a very bad situation and made it possible for them not to experience the consequences of it. And it reminds us that Jesus can do and does do that for us as well. It's not that he'll always spare us of the consequences of things we do intentionally or unintentionally. But here's what I do know, that when I invite Jesus in, especially the messes that I've done, he can make it an awful lot better than what I ever could without him. And he will even do that with unintentionally. Like, God, I didn't, I didn't know. I, I did the best I could, but this looks like it's turning out to be a mess. Will you help? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Let's just invite him in. And notice, though, that this, the servants, they had to draw this water out by faith. Because he's telling them, you take this to the head of the banquet. Well, what if it's just water? Yeah, yucky water that people's washed their hands in for who knows how many days, and it's just sat there, and it's stagnant. Yuck. I mean, it took faith for them to go, okay, you know. The superintendent of the bank was going to look at us pretty funny when he tasted it and go, well, that's yucky water. See? But here again, you and I, We'll see God do great things when we believe and have faith and trust and place our confidence in Him and in His Word. That's what unlocks the power of God in all of our lives. So when the head steward, verse 9, tasted the water that had been turned into wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and I want to point this out. This is really important. Notice that the servants, the waiters, actually had insight because they were willing to serve. They were able to see what others could not see because they were willing to serve. See, there's a special blessing attached to being willing to serve. And God will give us glimpses of things if we're willing to serve, that He won't give those who aren't willing to serve. And so we see that in this passage as well. And so the Bible says that the head of the banquet called the bridegroom. Dude! This is, this is unlike anything I've ever experienced. We don't do this in our culture. This isn't the norm. He says, everyone serves the good wine first. The most excellent, the choice, the surpassing wine first. And then once everybody has gotten a little bit in them, then we roll out the lesson rank, the lesson quality, the cheaper wine when they don't know any different. Now here's the point I want to make. Jesus not only blesses abundantly, but when we invite Jesus in, when He does it, it's the best. 
It's the choicest. It's the most excellent. It surpasses anything that anyone else could do. See, the wine that Jesus made was better than the best wine any human being could make. And what Jesus is showing here is just, if you would invite me into your life, if you would follow me, you would realize that I have your best interests at heart and that things will be so much better with me on board, leading the way, invited in, and that what I will do for you will surpass, will be most excellent, will be the choicest of things. You see, that's what we learn here. Now, not to do too much here, because I'm going to wrap this up in just a moment. But there's also a very important contrast that Jesus is making in this first miracle that he's doing. Because he used the water pots that was done for ceremonial ritual cleansing, Jewish tradition, he was showing in the wine that he created that his coming and his kingdom was replacing and surpassing the Jewish rituals that were so highly prized in Jesus' day. And that what Jesus could give a life and what Jesus could do in a person was so much better than all this human tradition and ritual that they had gotten caught up in too. Because wine is symbolic of the kingdom. It is symbolic of joy in the Bible. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament prophets that in the kingdom, wine will flow in the kingdom. And so he says, you have kept the good wine, the most excellent, the choice, the surpassing wine until now. Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs. There are seven miraculous signs in the Gospel of John that Jesus does. There's this one in chapter 2. Later on in chapter 4, there's the healing of the official's son. In chapter 5, there's the healing of the paralytic. In chapter 6, there's the feeding of the multitude. Also in chapter 6, there's the walking on water. In chapter 9, there's the healing of the blind man. And in chapter 11, there's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But this was the first. And notice again, it was done in Cana of Galilee. One of the things that Jesus says later on that I want us to recall at this point is that Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it is for these cities that surround the Sea of Galilee. Because he said they had greater light and therefore they are more accountable. So again, we love the fact that Jesus did miracles and Jesus revealed himself. But let's also remember in our lives, the more we know, the more we're responsible for. The more we see of God's power and God's glory, and the more we even understand in our own lives and experience God's working, the more we're responsible for. 
Which is why then it says in this way, he revealed his glory. His personal excellence and magnificence and majesty. And notice the Bible then ends this passage by saying, and his disciples believed in him. Some might say, well, didn't they already believe in him? That's why they're following him. Yes. Again, here's something we can apply to our life. As you and I move through our own personal relationship with Jesus, in our own personal experience with Him, hopefully we will be like the disciples. That the more we see how Jesus works in our life and how He operates in our life and what He does personally, Hopefully that will elicit more trust and confidence in Him as we move along. You see. We build up, in a sense, a personal resume with Jesus and and a personal relationship with Him so that just like the disciples, yes, they believed, but this was this level. Then the more they saw and the more they uh, experienced of, of who Jesus was and what He did, then they trusted in Him and believed in Him even more. And God wants that same kind of growing belief and faith and trust and confidence to take place in our life. That the main takeaway that I get from this passage tonight is that whatever God is doing, whatever God has done in my life, the primary motivation for it is this. Jesus wants me to trust Him, believe in Him, and place my confidence in Him more and more. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. This is the significance of the first miracle that Jesus ever did. Next week, we're going to look at another significant passage where Jesus goes into the very temple area in Jerusalem and drives out the money changers. And we're going to see what significance does that passage have for us today. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, the Creator of the universe, loves to be invited into lives, into celebrations, into relationships, into every area of life. And Lord, just as we've seen here tonight, you only make it better. You make the gathering the best when you're the very center of it. You make any relationship, any marriage, any friendship better when you're at the very center of it. You are a God who blesses. And when you bless, you bless abundantly and you give us your very best. Everything, Lord, you do for us is most excellent. It surpasses anything or everything else we could experience. And you want to show us as we walk with you, as we follow you, that you can be trusted. You can be relied on We can depend upon you. And that you want us to just keep trusting you and believing in you and putting our faith in you more and more every day. God, I pray that would be the case here tonight. 
that every one of us who leaves this room tonight would begin to think and contemplate and consider and even maybe wrestle with, Lord, how can I trust You more? What can I invite You into that I haven't already? And how can I share the blessing of knowing You with others? God, thank You for this passage. And thank You for our worship. And thank You for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for what we've experienced here tonight. And may, Lord, this time tonight carry us through the rest of this week. And bring us all back Sunday, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.